Father in heaven, we want to be worshipers whose hearts are always brought into your presence, whether it's by luxury or loss. We don't want blessing or bruising in any way to change the orientation of our mind and heart. And so I pray today that you would prepare some for difficulties that will come in 2009. I pray particularly for our young people, our teenagers, college students, young married, with a lifetime in front of them. I pray, Lord, that they would learn how to bear the yoke when they are young. You tell us in Lamentations 3 that this is good. I pray, Lord, for those who this very day is a difficult day. January 18th is a sad and hard day. And I pray that they will leave today with a great sense of hope, not in finding the reasons why, but in resting in who is in control. And then, Lord, I pray for others who today needs to be the day when they bend the knee and say, this pain has brought me face to face with my need to receive Christ. So, Lord... You alone can manage all of the needs in this room. And so I lay them before you and ask you to meet them where they are, by the word, with power, grace, and the full sense of your presence. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Without suffering, we would have never had a book called Pilgrim's Progress. Written by John Bunyan, who, rather than agree to the 1662 Act of Uniformity, chose instead to have a self-imposed prison sentence. You see, at any moment he could have said, no, I will agree to abandon my call to preach and just go underneath the umbrella of the Church of England. But because of conscience, Bunyan could not do that and therefore spent 12 years in a Bedford, England jail. And it was there that he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, translated in over 200 languages, the the most translated book in all of the world except the Bible. In his biography on, entitled Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, his autobiography, he was reflecting on 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 9, this text, which says, We have the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Reflecting on that particular verse, Bunyan writes this, By this scripture, I was made to see that if ever I would suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can be properly called a thing of this life, even to reckon myself my wife, my children, my health, my enjoyment, and all as dead to me and myself as dead to them. The second was to live upon God that is invisible. Cherish, savor that phrase. To live upon God that is invisible. As Paul said in another place, the way to faith is not to look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I want you to listen to that lifelong sufferer 
And here are the two things that he said. In order to suffer rightly, one must first pass a sentence of death over everything. That you decide, Lord, I am dead to all of these things except alive to you. I pass a sentence of death over all of them. And the second thing that he says is that he learned to live on God who is invisible. And that is how a jail cell in Bedford, England became a sanctuary of blessing and not cursing. He transformed that imprisonment into a platform for worship. And he did so by learning to live on him who is invisible. He learned to, yes, weep, but also worship. To suffer, but still be satisfied in his God. To live on him who is invisible. That is pain-filled worship at its heart. The aim for these seven weeks is to help us learn how to cling to the who question rather than the why question. I think all the things that we wrestle with when pain comes, honest questions like why me, why this, why now, and instead of clinging to those questions to release that question and instead grab a hold of the one answer we're given with clear authority and clear substance in the scripture and that is the who that is behind our hardship. My desire is to try and help you to see the beauty, the beauty and the strength and the hope of choosing to bless the name of the Lord in the midst of your darkest hour, to prepare you for when that time comes, so that you will choose a path of humble gratitude when you're hurting, instead of kicking against the hard providence that God sends, or somehow having a relationship with God that collapses under the weight of difficulty. My aim is to help you know how to live on him who is invisible. And last week we put the question this way. Is what I know about God big enough and deep enough for what I do not know now? Suffering and hardship begs the question, what in the world is going on? And the question we have to wrestle with is this. Is what I know about God big enough and deep enough for what I do not know Now, today we jump into the narrative of chapter 1 and part of chapter 2, and we see how Job was a pain-filled worshiper. So we begin with the character of this wonderful man named Job. The first five verses identify for us what he is like, essentially telling us that he is a righteous and godly man. That, that he is a man who is filled with uh, just a Godward orientation in his life. Notice that verse 1, we find out that his name is Job. The book begins, there was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. Uz was uh, likely on the northeast portion around the northeast of the Sea of Galilee. It had to be a region that could support both an agrarian and livestock lifestyle because as you'll see in a moment, Job had a lot of servants and a lot of cattle. The second thing that we notice is that he's described as righteous. Verse 1 tells us that. Notice it says he's blameless and upright. And the uprightness is described as one who feared God and turned away from evil. So to be clear, he's a model of righteousness. He's not perfect. Some of you, as you read through the book of Job, might think, well, Job was, I mean, he was like almost perfect and God dealt him a hard hand. How do I know that when God dealt me a hard hand, it's not because of some very specific sin in my life? And that may be the case. But there's also times when 
the correlation between what happens to you and the sinfulness, direct sin in your life, that there is no correlation that God is in the process of refining you. So Job wasn't perfect. He was like us. But he's a model of righteousness. He's blameless. He's upright. He turns away from evil. The third thing we see is he's wealthy. I mean, look at the list. He's got 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and it says many, many servants, such that verse 3 then summarizes it for us by saying that he was the greatest of all the people of the East. I mean, Job was the man in terms of righteousness. He was the man in terms of his wealth. He was the man in terms also of happiness. Notice verse 2. He has seven sons and three daughters. This is probably intended to communicate a sense of completion. A guy who's got seven sons and three daughters, got ten kids, beautiful home. And the sons and daughters, they live close to one another and they have festivals at each other's houses. It may have been birthday parties or something of that sort, but on a regular basis they, they went from house to house and had this, this wonderful time together. There was this environment around Job's family that was just absolutely beautiful. He had a happy home. Think of it like the Waltons of us. Okay? Think of it like that. And finally, he was diligent. Verse 5 tells us that he sees his role as a family priest. He rises early, offers sacrifices for his children, Because Job is afraid that somewhere in the course of their celebrations that they may have cursed God in their hearts, and thus verse 5 says that Job did this continually. So the idea is that Job is a wealthy, happy, righteous man. And the picture here is stunning. Job has it all. He has esteem. He has wealth. He's got a great family. He's got righteousness. This is a man who from a a world's perspective and from God's perspective is a model of what God wants image bearers to be and do. Then we enter into verse 6. And we get a little picture of what's happening behind the scenes. And hopefully you'll remember from our time last week that one of the interesting things about Job is that you as the reader are able to understand something that the uh, characters, particularly Job, does not. And that is that there is a plot above the plot. There's the story of Job that's happening, but there's also a a plot that's happening above the story of Job. And here we find that story in verse 6. The text indicates that there was a day when all of the heavenly beings, called here the sons of God, they came to present themselves before the Lord, and thus there was this gathering. And what the writer seems to want to indicate here is that there is this heavenly court over which Yahweh God is ruling. The word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It means I am. It means supreme. It's used over 14 times from the beginning of chapter 1 through chapter 2 and verse 10. And the idea is that God is reigning supreme, and then He's all of these servants of the heavenly hosts. And included in that gathering of heavenly hosts is none other than Satan, the great deceiver. And the Lord engages Satan in a conversation in verse 7. He asks him, where did you come from? And Satan's response is, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. So far, so good. Then God does something very interesting. He takes the spotlight of focus and he identifies in the land of us this man named Job and he says to Satan, have you considered... My servant Job, there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now that's a very interesting thing to do. Sort of like 
a clerk at a jewelry store who's being robbed. And while being robbed, says to the thief, have you considered the five-carat diamond in the front case? <laughs> and that's what he does. He, he focuses the accuser, the deceiver of the world, on his best emblem. And we'll see why. Satan's response is telling in verse 9. He suggests that the only reason that Job fears God is out of self-interest. Note that. He says, does Job fear God for no reason? Here's the Rogopian translation. My goodness, you blessed him beyond his socks, God. He's got everything he'd want. He's got wealth and happiness and kids. And you put a hedge around him and he's protected. You've never let me touch him. You've never let me do something. And his point is this. His point is you take away the blessings and everything will collapse. And then Satan says this to God. Stretch out your hand. Note that. Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. The battle line is drawn. Satan believes that the only reason people are religious is because of what they get out of it. The only reason God is worshipped is because he gives people good things. Therefore, take away the good stuff and their faith will collapse. That's what he thinks. Hmm. A couple things to note here. Some early lessons. First this. Notice that nothing about Job's life is accidental. God isn't up there wringing his hands. He doesn't have plan A, plan B, plan C. He doesn't have contingency plans to deal with Satan. Well, if he does this, it's, it's not like a chess game where you think four moves in advance. God has the whole game. He, he's already got it. And there's nothing about Job's life that's accidental. He's behind all of this and yet not morally responsible for the evil that Satan does. There is a divine intentionality about Job's life. It's God who turns the spotlight on Job, and Satan himself even says, Your hand, touch him, your hand. Don't spare your hand anymore. You reach out and touch him. Meaning, Lord, says Satan, you touch him. You do it. So there is a divine intentionality about this. Don't allow the mystery and the problem that that creates because of God's goodness and His divine intentionality to cause you to throw His sovereignty out the window to try and resolve that. There are some things we have to leave in tension. If you take away the sovereignty of God in Job's life, you take away hope. And that's what some people do. Because they can't resolve scenarios or, or they're uncomfortable with what this passage even says, they end up saying, well, God's not behind this. And the reality is he clearly is. And the fact that we can't fully reconcile it is just another reminder that we're not God. And we fall on our knees and we say, I know what the Bible tells me about you is true. And I know that you are good and merciful. And I know that you have ways beyond my ability to even comprehend. So there's nothing about his life that's by accident. There's nothing about your life that's by accident. Secondly, notice. Satan's primary accusation against God and Job is fairly simple. It's about self-interest. His question is this. Is God so good that he can be loved for himself and not just his gifts? Think of that. Satan's charge against God is, you know what? You're not so good that you can be loved just because of who you are. You're loved because of what you give people. And when you stop giving it to them, they will curse you to your face at the end of the day because you aren't that good. That's his charge. 
That's the battle. The battle isn't just about Job. The battle is about God and his worth. That's the issue. And then the other thing is this. Can a man hold on to God, or can a woman, can a man or woman hold on to God when there are no benefits attached? Meaning, will a person's faith and belief in God collapse when the blessings dry up or they don't understand why hardship comes? And Satan's accusation is this. His faith isn't that strong. Belief in you isn't that great. And you're not that worthy to be worshipped if you stop giving things to these people. Listen, that's a serious charge. This is not just about Job. This is about the very worth and honor of God. Third, notice that the cursing of God, cursing of God is what Satan wants. Cursing was what Job feared, thus the sacrifices. Cursing is what eventually his wife will tell him to do. And cursing is what Satan suggests Job will do. So there's something about this this cursing thing that is game, set, match for Satan. So here's the battle line when it comes to pain-filled worship. Mark it down in your mind. The battle line in pain-filled worship is will I bless or will I curse? That's the battle line. Will I bless the name of the Lord when hardship comes? Will I bless His name? Will I receive the things that He gives, both good and bad, with gratitude? Or will I say, no, I signed up for my relationship with you because of what you give me. And when you stop giving me good things, I'm out of here. And my fear is how many people, so-called believers, who heard the central message of heaven and hell, sins and forgiveness, simply received Jesus because they wanted a better accommodation in the afterlife. They wanted the abundant life. And then when they discover that the abundant life means difficulty and suffering and loss, they're like, whoa, I didn't sign up for that. I'm out of here. Listen, that isn't the essence of true conversion. To believe in Jesus means that you receive Him as Savior and Lord. He rules, He reigns, He controls. He has the right to give you wonderful blessings and also to ordain hardship to make you more like Himself. Because the end goal, beloved, is not heaven. The end goal is Christ. That's the goal. And the beauty of heaven is not the luxury or the accommodations or the mansions or the pearly gates or whatever you want. The beauty of heaven is Christ and you are like Him and you will see Him as He is. The result is that Job feels the first wave of calamity. The Sabaeans steal the oxen in verse 14. The fire of God falls from heaven, kills all the sheep. The the Chaldeans steal the camels and they kill all the servants in verse 17. And then the most tragic event of all, all of Job's children, the, the Waltons of Uz, they all are dead. And then notice, though, Job's response. Verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and what? Worshipped. That's got to be underlining your Bible. So that you know what to do when hardship comes. Sure. Mourn, grief, sorrow. That's all normal. That's not unspiritual to do that. But in your grieving and in your mourning, there is a grieving worship. That's a new category for some of us. Grieving worship. That you could actually be really sad and really down and really hurt and really just not sure what's going on. And you can still worship in that. 
You don't have to feel happy to worship. In fact, some of my clearest thoughts about God, some of the most beautiful moments, were not happy moments. On the contrary, suffering and pain yield clarity when it comes to who God is in worship. In his grief, he doesn't curse, he worships. And look at what he says. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away. Notice that. Not the Lord gave and Satan took away. Not the Lord gave and the whirlwind took away. Not the Lord gave and the fire took away. No, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He blessed and didn't curse. He chose to not accuse or charge God with wrong. And therefore Job passes the first test. Now, back to heaven. The scene shifts back to heaven again. Chapter 2. God and Satan are engaged in the same conversation. It's nearly identical. The context is the same. Sons of God come and appear. God asks Satan, where have you been? He says, from roaming the earth. And the spotlight again turns on Job, except this is what God says in verse 3. He says to Satan, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. God even says about himself, you incited me against him even to destroy him without cause. So Satan ups the ante. He argues that the level of the playing playing field is not level. He argues that God still is protecting Job. The, The fence and the hedge may be a little lower, but there's still a hedge there. He argues that Job's trials are still not enough. And he says, stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The reason is that Satan's theory... And his belief and his accusation is, okay, so yeah, you took all his stuff away, now take away his health, and a man will gladly trade his life for worship of you. In other words, there are some things in life, God, that are far more valuable than worshiping you, and a man will say, no, my life is worth more than worshiping you. That's the battle. So first it was giving the gifts, and whether or not taking the gifts away would result in the collapse of his faith. And Satan is saying, no, a man will give anything for his life, even give up on his God. And once again, God grants Satan permission with the restraint that he cannot kill him. And now the suffering takes on a whole new level. The calamity before yielded worship. Now this suffering now creates unique trust. Because Job is afflicted with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. His whole body covered with sores, probably boils. If you ever had a boil, you know they're extremely painful. Our daughter, Savannah, had one. And the only way to try and treat that boil is to debride it, and to debride it, either squeeze it. And it's incredibly painful. Think of it like a, a pimple or a zit on steroids. And it just hurts, right? You're like, yow, it just hurts. Think of it. Okay, so it's not like this little, it's like this big. And Job describes, the book of Job describes, he takes a piece of pottery and begins scraping the boil. Why? Because it itches. It hurts. And the itching feels good for a moment, right? Like when you have poison ivy. You ever had poison ivy? We have had, at our house in Fenville, we had poison ivy all over the place. The apple trees and the poison ivy got along well together. And so whenever I'd mow my lawn, there'd be little flakes of poison ivy leaves floating in the air. They'd get on my skin. And so all summer long, we dealt with poison ivy. And the thing about poison ivy and itching is, man, it feels good at first, right? You're like, oh, and your leg starts going, you know, you're like, oh, it feels so good, you know? 
But then when you're done, it hurts, right? It's, it's sore. And that the moment, and then it's just, you feel like you're going crazy. If you've ever had something like that, you, you, you could go insane because you just feel like you're, you're just coming out of your skin. The book of Job also describes that he was disfigured. He had sores that scabbed over. They cracked and they oozed. Hope you had a good breakfast this morning because his sores <laughs> were infected with worms. I mean, that's, that's gross. That'll get your kids' attention when you do devotions. He had fever with chills, the darkening and the shriveling of his skin. He, he describes that because of his weeping, his eyes were swollen. He had intestinal distress, sleeplessness and delirium. He thought he was going crazy. He even has bad breath, chapter 19, verse 17. He's emaciated and excruciating pain throughout his body. All of that to say this guy was in a tough spot. The result is he goes to the ash heap, this, this place outside of their dwelling where garbage was collected. One of two reasons he went there. Either one, because he chose to kind of contain himself, quarantine himself. He went out to the ash heap to protect his family from whatever he thought he had. Because, I mean, he doesn't know if it's contagious or not. He probably thinks he's going to die. Well, the other thing was is that he went out there because he's so in distress emotionally that this location just seems to fit what his life is like. It's just a big pile of trash. And there he is out on top of that ash heap, the burning, smoldering refuse that's burning underneath, and he grabs pieces of pottery and scrapes his sin, or scrapes, scrapes his skin, rather, fully aware that boils in the Old Testament were usually a sign of God's displeasure. So here he is on the ash heap, scraping his skin, thinking, God has just laid a hard blow on me beyond what I feel like I can even bear. And then what comes next must have been the most devastating blow of all. Because sometimes the most hard, the hurtful things in the world come from the people we love the most. Sometimes the people who should be most helpful aren't. Because in their suffering, they want relief. And therefore, they want you to somehow make it stop when you can't. His wife shows up and she says this. This is his lifelong companion, the, the, the mother of their dead children, and the love of his life. And she says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. The words curse God and die, they're imperatives. She's saying, Job, make it stop. Just curse God and die. You still hold fast your integrity? You still think God is like this and you're like this? Just curse God and die. And she is speaking out of the pain, the emotionalism, the, the searing sense of loss. She wants the whole scenario to stop. The suffering and the misery that she's watching and enduring is too much for her. But what she fails to realize is that her emotionalness, her short-sightedness, and her panicked words are actually almost exactly what Satan said. Ponder that. She echoes Satan's accusation. All that a man has he will give in exchange for his life. And now his soulmate is saying exactly what Satan said to God. And you can imagine that when she said those words, Satan took note and said, Yeah, say it, say it, say it. It's stunning to think, isn't it? That as a spouse, you could actually be a spokesperson for the enemy. You feel so much pain, you have so much tension, you just want it to be over. You, you, you want relief. And so therefore you say things 
that end up actually reflecting the very counsel of the enemy. Oh, let us be warned that we be careful about speaking out of our need for relief when the real need is righteousness. That's the difference. Job is going to hold fast his integrity. She wants relief. He's going to embrace righteousness. And he refuses to find a false way to get around his suffering and his pain. He refuses to manufacture some other means to bring resolution to it. He won't create resolution unless there really is one. And then Job, as a godly man, answers her. It's amazing. Because it's so gracious and because it's so right. And a lot of times, 121 is made as the kind of the verse the Lord gave, Lord take away, blessed be the name of the Lord, as the theme of the book of Job. That's a great verse and is a theme of the book of Job, but so is this one. When he says this, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Notice his graciousness. He's not, he's not, that's not a strong rebuke. I mean, I, that's probably not what I would say. I don't know. I'm not sure, but I don't think so. I'm thinking I might be like, you want a boil? Come here, I'll give you one. (laughs) You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. He says, and here's here's the verse. This is so important. This, This needs to be underlined in your Bible. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? But I don't think he said it like that. I think he said it like this. Shall, Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Here's a broken man who chooses to still place his hope and trust in his God. Two words that are really important in that little phrase. The first word is evil. Hebrew word, it it means evil, but it can also mean things like bad. So don't read evil and think, oh, shall we receive sinful things from God? It means evil like bad or hard or difficult or painful. And, And Job is saying there, shall we receive good, blessed things from God and not receive hard things from God? The other word that's really important, you have to understand this word, is the word receive. Receive. The word means active, positive participation in what God decrees. So it's not just you receive it like, boom, a body blow. It's not you receive it like you just are hit by it. No. It's more than that. It's the way that, think of the way that you receive a gift. You receive it and you welcome it. Now, how you receive blessing and how you receive bruising are different, but the means by which you receive them are the same. That isn't just that you are an inactive participant just getting boom, boom, boom. No, it means that your hands are outstretched and you not only receive good, but you also are willing to receive hard things. It means that you receive them with gratitude. It means that you place your hope and trust in God, that He knows what we need. It means that we're thankful for the good that comes from God, and we're also supposed to be thankful for the things that are hard, that we're to humbly receive both. We're to see bruising and bounty as consecrated and ordained by God. But the problem is that most of the time we don't see bruising that way. We assume that the bruising is negative, that it's unhelpful. Or we say things like, why now? And there's a huge reason why. We just can't see it. 
And, and what is on the battle line at that point in time is whether or not you will bless the name of the one who is behind blessing and bruising or whether or not everything has to make sense to you. Because in order to cling to who and let go of the why, you have to let go of your right to understand everything that's going on in your life. Both bounty and bruising are blessed. They're blessed when you can bless the name of the one who is behind them both. And the final summary statement leaves us amazed and convicted. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Wow. Wow. Learn to live on him who is invisible. Cling to the who question, not the why question. It means that we determine that what could have destroyed our faith becomes a platform for worship. It means that you've answered the question, is God so good that He can be loved for Himself and not His gifts? And the answer is eternally, yes! Yes, He can be! And then when He takes it away, you say, yes, you're still worthy! And yes, you're still worthy! And the more you say yes, the more glorious He becomes to you and anyone who's a part of your life. So how do we do that? How how do we build a foundation of pain-filled worship? How do you create your own altar? Let me give you four things from Job's statements. The first is this. I want you on the altar of pain to be able to say, Lord, I choose to bless your name. How do you do that? First thing relates to the issue of focus. And that is the question, why are you here? I mean, like, not just here in church, but why are you here in life? Job 1.21, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. What is he saying? He knows that life is not the enjoyment about the gifts of life alone. He knows that life is not involved in grabbing a hold of the gifts at the neglect of the giver. Job knows his place as creature and God as creator. So there's no tones of, of rights violated or questions unanswered or statements of injustice. Rather, there is this grief, yes, really deep, deep grief, but yet there is worship emanating from Joe's statements because he knows that he exists not just to consume the gifts, but to celebrate the giver. That his life is not filled with, with the happiness of, of marriage and kids and property and stuff and health. All of that stuff is second to worship. And the focus of his heart has been cultivated day after day after day, week after week, year after year. Job is a worshiper, so when hardship comes, it's just natural it comes out of him. Train your heart to worship, beloved. Agree with Job. Yea, though he slay me, I will bless him. That I'm not here for things and stuff and family and friends. As great as those are, I'm not here for these. I am here to worship. That little praise chorus, here I am to worship, became like ground zero for me. For almost, I think it was about three months, every morning I would have to say, here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. You are altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. And I'd say it over and over. In fact, one time, my kids came down in the basement. I was running on the treadmill. The song was playing. And I was in a moment of worship. I had my eyes, it's dangerous. I had my eyes closed. But I'm running on the treadmill. 
And I'm literally, I'm raising my hands up as I'm running. So I'm running, here I am to worship. And my, the kid, my wife says, how's dad doing down there? And the kids are like, I, I don't know. He's like running like this with his hands up in the air. Because I'm, I'm trying to run and worship. Because my heart needed to say a lot. Here, Mark, you are to worship. Kind of cultivate a God-worshipping heart. Number two, it is that I need to have a right view of God. My theology needs to be right. Again, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Job had a robust understanding of the sovereignty of God, of all events, even hard and difficult things. Just because he didn't understand it, didn't know the story, didn't violate his understanding of God's sovereign purposes. He just simply rested. And and so my question is, is, is your God big enough to handle things that you don't understand? Or does God have to make sense to you? And, and I, I realize that there's some of you who may wonder, well, is God therefore an accomplice of evil? And the answer would be absolutely not. And for that really kind of naughty question, I'd commend D.A. Carson's book. We have it out on the table. How long, O oh Lord? He says this, God is never presented as an accomplice of evil or as secretly malicious or as standing behind evil in exactly the same way that He stands behind good. So pain-filled worship flows from a heart that says, I know you are good. I know you are in control. I know that you intend the best for me. And even though this hurts in His heart, I will not let go of your control of my life. Because if I let go of that, I let go of everything. I can't live in a world where God says, oops, or doesn't know what's going to happen, or doesn't have divine plans or purposes beyond my ability to comprehend. A sovereign God makes me safe. Confused. (laughs) Yeah. But safe. Number three. Affections. Job says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. He chooses to bless the Lord in the midst of the loss of everything. His love for God was not conditional on the gifts that God gave him. God gave him blessing. He still loved the Lord. God gave him bruising. He still loved the Lord. My question is, can God give you blessing without your affections spiraling downward? Because you realize both luxury and loss are equally dangerous. Just danger of a different kind. In luxury, your self-sufficiency expresses it this way. I did this myself. Look at our stuff, baby. Look at our kids and look at all this stuff. And you think I did it myself. Loss, on the other hand, is self-sufficiency of a different kind where you begin to say, how dare you, God, do this to me? I don't deserve this. What did I do to warrant this pain? And self-sufficiency flows out of our hearts so quickly. So the question is, and what suffering surfaces, is what do we really love? When God takes things away and we're stripped with all of what we have and love and what we thought our life was going to be and how things were going to turn out, when He takes that away, the question is, are you left with love or rage at God? We have to point and pull and direct our affections And say, God, I love you. Yea, though you slay me, I will bless you. And then finally, we come to the issue of trust. 
For Job says in chapter 2 and verse 1, shall we receive good and not receive evil? The, the point is, is that Job knows what God, Job says God knows what I need. Both good things and hard things are gifts. I may not see how they're gifts, but I believe that they are. Doesn't mean that I like it or that it's easy or somehow I, I glory in some kind of weird or sick way in the pain. Oh, pain. Yes, pain. No. It means you go, oh, pain. But you trust that it is for your good. You can always trust. You can always cling to the who question. And so for many of us, this is where the real battle lies. For some of you today, today is a literally a literal dividing line decision day for you. Who will you trust? Will you trust in you and your ability to figure it out? Will you trust in how to be able to make sense of it? Or will you say, no, I will trust in my God. I will choose to bless His name. You will never be able to turn pain into a platform for worship unless you make the choice to trust. So at focus, right theology, right affections, right trust, we build this altar of pain-filled worship and we climb up there and say, blessed be your name. This is how John Bunyan turned Bedford Jail into a sanctuary of savoring Christ. He learned to live on Him who is invisible. This is what he says, Let me beg of thee that thou wilt not be offended either with God or men. If the cross is laid heavy upon thee, not with God, for he doth nothing without a cause, nor with men, for they are the servants of God to do thee for good. Take therefore what comes to thee from God thankfully. Choose to bless his name. Lord, give strength today to weary, broken-hearted people who need to say this morning, Jesus, it is well with my soul. I choose to trust. I choose to stake my life on who, not why. I choose to fan affections for Christ I choose to say I am done with the why well we're just in an attitude of prayer I want to just end our service today in a way frankly that's a little hard and that is that I'd I'd like just to open the front of the auditorium up here for some people to come and kneel and say, Lord, today I choose to trust. I'm not going to have you stand. I'm not going to sing. I'm going to make it a little tough. But maybe where you're seated, you just get up from your seat, excuse the people who are next to you, and just come up here and kneel and say, Lord, today I say it is well. It is well with my soul. I choose that today. And I invite you to come right now. People around you will move. You're just going to come up. Nothing super spiritual or sanctified about this location. It's just a place for you to come and kneel and say, Lord, my body is here at the front where my heart wants to be in front of you to say, it is well with my soul. I choose to trust. Our counselors are on their way up. They have 
little College Park logo on their lapel. If you need counseling, you just pick your head up, look around, and they'll find you and pray with you. It's not going to be long. So if you sense the Lord saying, go kneel, just bend that knee. Come now, come quickly. Bend your knee and say, I choose to bless, Lord. Thank Him. Name it, Lord. I choose to bless the foreclosure of our home. I choose to bless, Lord, in Your name, the cancer that's come. I choose, Lord. It's just an expression of gratitude to the Lord. I choose to be thankful for. I choose to bless Your name for, Lord. You're talking to Him, not to your pain. You're talking to Him choose to bless. I choose to trust. I choose to release all of my needs to know why. It is well. So Lord, for these who have come and for others who will write down on prayer request cards, things for us to pray about this evening. Fill them, I pray, with great hope and joy in Christ. They're not going to leave here today happy, but they might leave filled with hope. So please do that, Jesus. Here they are, Lord, to worship. Here they are to say, you are their God. You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy. All together wonderful for me. As we close, I just want to ask you to allow these folks up here to some time with the Lord. Maybe a friend that you could just come and pray with. Maybe you need to come here afterwards. There's, again, folks here are able to meet the needs in your heart in the name of Jesus. Don't leave untouched, unhelped in the name of Jesus today. We ask all this in Christ's name.